0: Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Ann Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, questions are opportunities. We are joined by Paul Levinson, author, musician, and professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University, who shares both his experiences as an early pioneer of online education and his thoughts about how we are all content creators now.
1: Paul, before we get started, can you introduce yourself a little bit and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your life at Fordham and your career before coming to Fordham?
2: I guess the first creative thing I ever did in my life was uh, I was a songwriter and actually recorded a record back in 1972 called Twice Upon a Rhyme. It was an album, is an album. It sold a negative number of copies. Uh, and I had a master plan back then that I'd wait almost 50 years for the next album that I did to come out. Songwriting, singing, record producing, that's one of the things that I do. I'm also a science fiction author. I uh, have a whole bunch of novels published. One of my short stories was made into a low budget movie. You know, so low budget, it didn't even have a budget, but nonetheless, it's <laughs> a pretty good movie. It's called The Chronology Protection Case. And I am also a nonfiction writer. I have a whole bunch of books about media theory and the future and history of media published. Those have been translated into about fifteen languages. I arrived at Fordham in nineteen ninety-eight. Before then I had been teaching adjunct on and off for about fifteen or twenty years in different schools because I was also busy, and this is very relevant to our well, today my wife and i founded a company called connected education back in the uh, mid-1980s Uh connected or connected for short and we offered courses for online credit that was the, the credit was given by the new school for social research other places as well uh, before then i'd been a professor at fairly dickinson university in tina i decided to go back to uh, teaching in person That's how I wound up coming to Fordham in 1998. And one important point about Fordham, it literally is about a 10-minute walk from where I grew up, which is Allerton Avenue and White Plains Road. So when I arrived at Fordham for my first interview, I really felt like I was coming home. And I even feel that way right now, like whenever I drive to Fordham.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about what online education was like back in the 80s and 90s? Because it's hard for me to even imagine those were the real early days of even the capacity to do it.
2: Yeah, very early days. they basically in the courses that we taught, you could, with a lot of effort, introduce an image into the course. But basically, it was all text. It was the written word. You know, the 1980s, there were no MP3s. There were really no JPEGs. It it really wasn't until the 1990s that the Internet began opening up to sounds and images and pretty soon after that, videos. Uh, Obviously, there was nothing like Zoom or Google Hangout. Google didn't even exist back then. What we did is there were several universities that had developed, really for their own students and their own professors, very primitive online systems where people could exchange email. You would have what we would say, say some kind of forum online, Uh, again, purely text. Maybe there was one image at the top of the uh, header of the forum. And back then, the New Jersey Institute for Technology was one of the leaders in that field. So for example, in our organization, I created something called the Connected Cafe. It was just another place for people to exchange messages but it, it looked a little bit like a cafe. I think, why? Because we managed to put in an image of like a, a steaming cup of coffee <laughs> on the top of the cafe, you know, that kind of thing. And we had a book service where we managed to like put in a bunch of books where students could order books. But, but the way in which it was done was completely, you, you would teach a course by putting in you know, an introductory lecture, you know, just as you do in an in-person class, letting the students know what the class is about, getting them to introduce themselves, and then you would proceed with the various topics. Uh, It it was not that hard back then in the mid 80s to, uh, if you had an article that was in digital form, you could easily upload it so that the uh, students in the class could read it. Of course, getting it into digital form was another problem because there weren't scanners and uh, I right. had an in-person student of mine at the new school who basically put the uh, papers, sat down and typed them, you know, into a computer. And that's how we got them online.
0: So these courses were asynchronous, I guess. They were like discussion posts and boards and so on.
2: Yes, it was completely asynchronous. And we discovered, uh, and uh, you know, in retrospect, it just really uh, is common sense. But we didn't quite realize it ourselves until we began doing it. And this is one of the things that i'm doing right now with the courses i'm teaching at fordham there are many advantages to asynchronous instruction and education first of all people participate when they want to participate so if you're a student uh or for that matter a professor yeah you do have to do a certain amount of work but you decide whether or not to do it at six in the morning 12 noon, 6 in the evening, 2 in the morning. So, you know, time takes on a completely different dimension. That's one very important advantage. Another is it doesn't, you know, matter where anyone lives. Uh, You know, right now, let's say if you want to do something through Zoom and, uh, you know, your students have dispersed even across the United States, everyone's in a different time zone. Uh, In the cases of some schools and it makes it a lot harder, you know But if you're doing something asynchronously, it doesn't matter what your time zone is because again You participate when you want to and then a third big advantage If you're someone who just has a problem getting from one place to another Maybe you have a physical disability for all kinds of reasons because you don't have to go any place the 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 asynchronous uh, uh, mode fits in. That, of course, also works with synchronous online education. But but again, because you choose the time, uh, you you don't have to worry, uh, you know, if you're sitting down to write something and the baby starts crying, and you need to take care of the baby, that's okay, because there is no time that the uh,
1: Can you talk a little bit about how you're approaching this transition to teaching? Also kind of what it feels like. Do you you miss the classroom?
2: You know, on the one hand, there's nothing like an in-person class, as we all know. You know, there's a certain energy. I I think all teachers who are happy teaching at least feel that, you know, you walk into a classroom, it's like, wow, it's like you're walking into another dimension. And, And when it's working well, you can sort of feel the electricity in the room. I You know, I think everyone would agree you, there's nothing you can do that will totally replace the in-person classroom. but I, I think the asynchronous mode has been working well from my two classes.
0: So Anne and I've been wanting to speak to a media theorist because it seems like all of us now are are creating media content of a sort um through these Zoom sessions, through the recordings of these sessions. And even the students, in in some sense, are co-creators of the content, especially if those sessions are are recorded. So I'm wondering what you think about this from your perspective as someone who is kind of an expert on media creation and media theory.
2: Well, I think what you're saying is true. One of the things that has happened, however, even before this pandemic, because of the ubiquity of smartphones and their almost effortless uh, ability that they give anyone who has one to to not only take a photograph but uh, record a video what that has done and what's going on in online education just sort of uh, jumps on that is it's made it almost as easy not quite the same uh, level of easiness, but almost there, almost as easy to make a video of something as it is to have a conversation with somebody. Uh, and uh, you know, for people like me, and of course, the two of you are much younger than me, so you'll you'll probably remember this. But you know, I, I grew up in a world where the difference between an in person interaction and and being on television or being on the radio was like a huge You know, no no one that I knew was on television. I had no way of getting on television. I remember getting back to my music, you know, the first time I heard one of my songs played on the radio. I couldn't believe it. It was absolutely mind-blowing and thrilling. But nowadays, and this has been the case for years and years already, anybody can put a video on YouTube. And in some cases, people who are not in any way professional. You know they're just kids and you know the, the one of the videos that got YouTube started was you know Charlie bit my finger this classic video of some uh, parents in England they had two little kids You know that didn't take any, any professional uh, you know production and, and it's you know now been seen I guess hundreds of millions of times so What's going on now in online education is that same kind of thing. Yes, it is media, but media already have become vastly democratized. And there's, of course, as there is in just about everything, a huge controversy that's been raging about this for now a few years. Part of it is anybody can put a book on Amazon Kindle, and and it's not vetted by a professional editor. So people have been complaining fears my god, this is going to unleash a torrents, a a torrent of garbage. I don't agree with that. I think actually, it's good to open up the world to have more authors. Uh, But but the same thing has been said about you you know, it's so easy now even to make a movie, you know, anybody can throw anything up as a video that somehow, the the quality of the video, both in terms of the content and the technical quality is being degraded. But I thought even before this, that that's increasingly less the case. And if if you look now at CNN or MSNBC, you can see clearly that the people presenting the news and anchoring the shows are at home. You know, sometimes they, uh, many times they have like, screens in back of them. So it looks like more professional. But but they're basically presenting the news in the same way that anybody doing a video podcast would be talking. So, by and large, if I had to make a value judgment about that, I think that's a a good thing, because I think that we need all the intelligence we can get in the world. Uh, especially given the cascading problems that we're now trying to grapple with. And by opening up media that were formerly closed to most people, I think we we as a species and therefore the planet is, is benefiting and will benefit from that development.
0: It's yeah, so interesting. One of the things that you said I want to think about just for a moment is this idea of quality what is a quality piece of media look or sound like anymore you know in, in the world of charlie bit my finger getting 11 million views or so when i work with instructors to create lecture videos they're hypersensitive of the quality of the video what is it you know the sound the, the picture and trying to get them to understand that the students ex- will view this video not not projected in a movie theater but on their phone or some other mobile device in a variety of contexts and that has implications for what what is what quality means so i think the more you invest in making something beautiful maybe the less timely it is in a sense
2: a very very good question so in the first place it depends what medium we're talking about so getting back to the objections About it's so easy for anyone to put a book up uh, and and have it published as an Amazon Kindle Um, if if you put a book up uh, and you don't have a professional editor look at it uh, first of all chances are there won't be too many spelling mistakes because any word processor and Amazon itself checks for that but what word processors and uh, Amazon can't possibly automatically check for is just, you know, the felicity of the wording. And so right. in, in that sense, th- there is, I think, a, a, you know, a, a degradation in some of these, uh, works, but that's a very different kind of degradation than a video, which doesn't quite look that sharp. Uh, because the lighting is off and you know the the the, the typical basics of a good video uh, as I mean they're easy enough to find out is y- you need to be front lit rather than lit. you know how, how much of your image is in the video is it a close-up whatever so all those things uh, when they're done well do make for a crisper sharper video but I think that those kinds of problems are not the same as someone who can't write well. Uh, And so that's why I think, if you're talking about a professor who's saying, like, I'm concerned, I don't look that good. I mean, look, this might be an unkind thing to say, but maybe some professors should worry about how they look in a classroom, but they don't, and they're right not to worry about it. I mean, I mean, I, I suppose there are some professors who think, what am I gonna wear the class? And is my hair exactly uh, right? And, you know, obviously, you're not going to walk into a classroom, you know, in a completely disheveled mess. But most professors, you know, as long as they're on a minimal level of looking, okay, go in and teach your class. I would uh, suggest that professors feel the same way about video. I mean, obviously, you don't want to be completely unwatchable. But as long as, you know, and, you know, I've seen, you know, make sure all your background is not too crowded, you know, don't have too many pictures in the back, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I I think that kind of concern, it's fine if you want to do it, but it's it's really uh, not necessary. And where, however, there is an important point, I think, to be made is not to let the fact that you're doing this through technology distract you from the points you want to make, whether it's, you know, in an asynchronous fashion or a synchronous fashion, because in that case, there could be, you know, some kind of de- deterioration. So it, it's a sort of ironic, almost a paradox. If you're not worried about, you, you know, the the technicalities of it, what you look like, what the writing is, chances are you'll just be relaxed and go in and and give a good lecture. If you do start worrying about it, even if you look fine, the fact that you're worrying about it can get in the way of your delivering a good lecture or talking. And so, you know, it's like one of these things, uh, you know, the the, the be spontaneous paradox. You know, someone says, right, you know, be spontaneous. Okay, I'll be spontaneous. But therefore, since you're doing it because somebody told you to do it, you're not it. You know, you're doing fine until you begin worrying that you're not doing fine and then indeed you're not doing fine because that's getting in the way of what you're saying. So uh, that's why I always advise people just forget about it. Forget that you're on camera and just talk.
1: Well, I think that's, that's so interesting what you're saying, Paul, because I think I was saying to someone before this pandemic about PowerPoint. Someone was talking to me about you know, Anne, what's your strategy with PowerPoint? And I said, you know, I almost never use PowerPoint in my teaching because I'm actually quite interested in graphic design. And I find that I spend my entire class preparation time making my PowerPoint look pretty. And then I realize I haven't been thinking about the content of my talk, that I've gotten completely focused on, oh, can I make the background look pretty? And so, you know, it, the filter that we're working through by teaching online, whether it's synchronous or asynchronous, creates a kind of opportunity or a challenge for us because we can get distracted. Does my video look good? How do I look, right? I've never looked at myself so much as I have in the past eight weeks because I see all these self views in these Zoom calls and Google Hangout calls. And I'm like, oh, my hair. I don't think about my hair um but i do this i do now i'm not doing anything about it but i'm thinking about it and it's kind of take taking a toll
2: <laughs> no i know what you mean. well first of all b- because of what you said about powerpoint i don't allow powerpoints in these eloquentia you classes because indeed that's what happens uh the students put all their energy into doing a really exciting uh, you know powerpoint presentation but that's not the same as talking uh to the class um, you know, as far as what you look like, this is something I realized a long, long time ago. And and it, it uh, pertains to every time any aspect of us is recorded. Uh, the first time I heard my voice recorded, I wanted to like run out in the street and just like start screaming and like run a hundred miles away from anybody uh, in my vicinity because I sounded to me like some kind of lunatic. Uh, the first time I was ever on a video, that was even worse. I couldn't believe how atrocious I looked. Uh, the, it's all a relative thing. <laughs> I think we're, The problem is we're used to seeing ourselves in the mirror, right? So th- that, that's the only way that we see our images. But, we, you know, most people are not used to and weren't used to what they look like in, in video. But it turns out that no one looks that bad in video. In fact, sometimes you look (laughs) better in video than you look in person.
1: Are there books or writers that you think people are looking to read something that would help them imagine this future world that you would recommend?
2: Uh, As far as media uh, theory is concerned, there's one person who is in a class of his own, and uh, he's been misunderstood by many people. He's been uh, criticized by people who either, in my view, are too lazy, too jealous. Uh, mm-hmm. And the last is like unflattering, maybe not bright enough to understand his work. Uh, but it, it, I'm talking about Marshall McLuhan. I had the pleasure actually of working with him the last few years of his life in the late 1970s. He had one of these minds where it's not that he was Imprescient because no one really is and literally saw the future, but he he understood communications and how people uh, Interacted and conveyed and received information So well that, that he was able to see where things were going So, you know back in the 1960s 1962 he talked about the global village which back then there was no global communication right it was The most maybe was national communication. Everybody could watch a television show at the same time. But McLuhan realized back then that because electricity traveled at the speed of light, you could have communication across the globe instantly. And this would create global communities. And and that's exactly uh, what's happened. Another one of his important concepts is the medium is the message, which says, It's not so much what you convey, it is how you convey it that makes a crucial difference. So everything we were talking about earlier about how to conduct an online class, the the content of the class might be pretty much the same as in an in-person class, but it's a radically different experience, uh, especially if it's asynchronous uh, than an in-person class. So uh, I strongly recommend uh, McLuhan and his work. His two best books are um, Understanding Media and The Gutenberg Galaxy. And Understanding Media was published in 1964, The Gutenberg Galaxy in 1962. Uh, A good introduction to McLuhan, I'll say immodestly, is uh, my own book, Digital McLuhan, published uh, in 1998. And um, since that was published in 1998 before social media, I I published like a a, a short scholarly tract called McLuhan in an Age of Social Media. And apropos of what you can do on Amazon, that book is always current because I published the book in 2015, but I updated every month or every few months. And updating a book on Amazon is easy as pie. You just update the file and you upload the new file and, it, and Amazon feeds it right into your you know, book.
1: In this crisis, are there any teachers from your past that you think back on as real models for you as you conduct yourself as a professor for our students?
2: The professor that I probably learn the most from, and it's sort of ironic because he and I disagreed uh almost vehemently about the impact of media he was a pessimist and a severe critic of media in contrast to me which is you can tell i tend to be an optimist and uh i think a realistic optimist but uh you know uh, people who are critical of media think that i'm somehow a blind optimist They, they don't accept the fact that i've considered their criticisms and found the criticisms wanting (laughs) uh, I've you know gone on to a a more optimistic view anyway I'm talking about uh, Neil Postman who was a director of the PhD program at New York University where I got my PhD in the mid-1970s and what I learned from Neil uh and and you know it just was so wonderful to partake of this was the joy that he got from teaching. He he just enjoyed teaching so much. He enjoyed talking, he enjoyed, he loved it when somebody asked him a question. The worst thing for him would be if he gave a talk and nobody asked him a question, whether in a classroom or whatever. And, And I realized then, you know, right there, you know, in that response to questions, and we've all had this, there are some professors where they'll answer your questions but they almost seemed like a tiny bit annoyed that, that they asked the questions. Well, you know, especially if it's a challenging question. But Postman was precisely the opposite. There was no such thing as a challenging question or no such thing as a question that was so challenging to him that he didn't want the question. He, he looked at questions as opportunities. And uh, that that's, you know, something that I've always carried with me Uh, since uh, the 1970s and that's been something that's been helpful to me both in the in-person classroom but also online because one of the things is I'm sure everyone who's been teaching online realizes has happened is you know students they're not sure what they're supposed to do even if you explain to them so they'll send you an email so should I do this should I do that Again, I look at those questions as opportunities. I'm glad to get uh, you know, questions like that because it, if I can help a, a student understand it better, and often the question is something that the overall class would be interested in the answer. So they're all opportunities. So uh, that to me is probably my single biggest inspiration from a, a professor I had as far as teaching in person and online.
1: Oh, that's great. What a great story. And what a wonderful phrase to think about questions as opportunities. Before we go, is there anything else you wanted to make sure we got a chance to talk about?
2: The coronavirus is a horrible thing to have happened. You know, the loss of life, the disruption of families, what it's doing to business, and, and all those things are horrible. And we would have been much better off if none of those things had happened. But I think it's also the case. Uh, that's very rare uh, you know, to find something that happens at such a huge scale where there are in some benefits, unexpected positive consequences, which don't make up for the loss of life. Nothing can make up for that. Don't make up even for businesses going under, few things can make up for that. So the, the, these uh, advantages don't make up for any of that, but I think that we should try to be alert them, You know, a lot of universities already offer online options. I I think that universities should make them even easier for students uh, to do.
1: Paul, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. And we're so glad that you made the time to talk to us. And you you really gave us a ton to think about. We knew that would be the case, but it was really terrific. Uh,
2: My pleasure.
0: Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.